Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. In this episode, we're looking into what is possibly the most overlooked and undocumented studio album in Billy Joel's discography, Street Life Serenade, released in 1974. It's Billy's third album and second for Columbia Records. It's also the last one he made before leaving the West Coast. After this, he'd go back to New York and put together what he called an East Coast band. Then, he'd take a change in musical direction with his next album, Turnstiles. As a result, Street Life Serenade features songs that weren't as fully realized as the ones on his previous album and sounded nothing like what came next. At the time, Columbia wanted to capitalize on the success of Piano Man, which came out in 1973. Even though Billy didn't feel like he had enough material yet for a new album, Columbia put the pressure on, and the result came out October 26, 1974. Like the albums before it, Street Life Serenade features Billy backed by session musicians. The players at this time included Ron Tutt, drummer for Elvis Presley and Jerry Garcia, amongst others. Al Hertzberg, who played guitar live with Billy at the time, is also on the record. This album also marks the first time Billy used synthesizers. Billy's gone on record calling Street Life Serenade directionless and not his best work. He's even speculated that his success in Australia is due in part to the fact that they did not release the album there initially. Even so, two of the songs got new treatments on the Live Songs in the Attic album, Another made it to the seminal Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2 collection, and the album also contains a song that Billy used as a concert closer for many years. Still, today the album is lost in the shuffle between the bona fide classics on the album before it and the dozens of hit records that came after. It's a curiosity in his catalog, and the only one he doesn't really draw from anymore at concerts. It's not surrounded by lore like his more obscure debut, Cold Spring Harbor, and it features two instrumentals, something we'd never hear on a Billy Joel pop album again. For this episode, we're looking at the circumstances surrounding the writing and recording of the album, and we're doing a track-by-track breakdown. It's maybe not the substandard, directionless work that its creator deemed it. Instead, it's an interesting snapshot of Billy's life as a struggling recording artist. It's also cinematic, and full of some great musical ideas, even if they never quite found a good home. Finally, it's subtly subversive in its lyrical, compositional, and arrangement choices. Join us as we take a deep dive into Billy Joel's third album, Street Life Serenade. When I wrote this intro, I had just written Overlooked, and you also brought up the fact that it's very undocumented. This is an album that's always been curious to me because... Maybe because Piano Man was such a classic song and then, you know, that was his first major label album and Turnstiles was the first one with the Lords. Something about Street Life here, it's just like almost it doesn't exist in a lot of ways. I mean, sure, the album is here and that part of it's there, but it's really tough to find any information on it, photos, anything documenting the recording session, any of that stuff. It's just Mm -hmm. almost non-existent. Yeah, you know, when we did Cold Spring Harbor... Uh, we, you know, we found like a whole nother album's worth of demos. Any of the other albums, you'll find plenty of articles. I mean, there's a couple of reviews of this one, but other than that, it's really not too much at all. 
and you know, that really just plays into what a weird almost footnote this is in his uh, catalog. Cold Spring Harbor may have ended up just as obscure, if not more, but it got that re-release in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and not only did it get the re-release, but, you know, they tinkered with it so much. And, right. you know, and Billy always, even if he wasn't as proud of that one, he always joked about him, how he sounded like a chipmunk on it. So it even got some play that way. This is the one that you really think he would just forget about it if he could, if not for, you know, nerds like us digging it back up and pouring over every second of it. You know, I'm looking, I've got, I'm holding the album in my hand. Like everything about it is so different from everything else. You know, it's a painted cover, which, you know, you don't mm-hmm. see again until the bridge and later River of Dreams. Um, yeah. It's a very strange posed photo of Billy on the back jacket. And even, you know, the, the insert, it's a plain insert. There's no lyrics. There's yeah. no anything like that on the inner sleeve. It's just a super sparse package. I wonder if it was rushed in that way as well. There's no cohesion to the front and back covers of this at all. If you think about turnstiles, well, okay, even, you know, you go back to Piano Man, the the color scheme, that sort of old-timey photograph goes around to the back. Turnstiles is a continuation, you know, of the same scene. Uh, The front and back of The Stranger are black and white, and so on and so forth. This one, they just kind of slap two things on there. Uh, Well, the painting is based on a real spot in L.A., but has nothing to do with the album. There is nothing about that painting that has anything to do with a guy singing on the corner, which is sort of what Billy's really alluding to in the title-ish track. <laughs> right. From what I've yeah. read, Billy was going for, with you know, overall with the album was kind of like a, a suburban Midwestern feel. And he yeah. wanted uh, the artwork to reflect a suburban town. And so it's really funny that this is actually <laughs> in the Hollywood, L.A. area that was yeah, uh, yeah. used for the inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like the old West a little, but uh, it's it's certainly not. Yeah, almost like I could see this being like New Mexico or something. I gave this a listen, and yeah, you know, a couple songs popped that hadn't before, but I couldn't say I, I like fell back in love with this album or rediscovered like Cold Spring Harbor. I really kind of mm. got back into, even when we were done that episode, I gave it a couple more spins. You know, here's what I think about this one. I'm going to use a word very specifically, and the word is queer. Okay. It's a queer Queer take on the West Coast. And here's what I mean by that. I've been taking this lecture series actually on the book Dracula. And in one of the uh, lectures, uh, they talked about the word queer being used as, as a British and like as a literary term in the sense that you take something and you queer it. And, and what they're saying is you take something and you make it just not normal. Like however it is, something's off about it. That's the exact phrase that came to mind. Yeah. He queered the West Coast on this because... Think of his contemporaries on the West Coast and how he's in, in some ways trying to be like them, but he's not quite doing it because there's there's some things that are still so Billy and still so like very East Coast, which I'll get into. He's very genuine in a way that I would, you know, venture to say some of the other guys weren't. Sure. So I'm going to bring up three people that I thought of on this album, uh, one a little less than the others. Okay. okay. So the first one's James Taylor. Yep. And what I'm going to say about James Taylor is just that the man lived way harder than his music. Do you know what I mean? So there's there's an air of something not being genuine. I, I could take or leave him, but I'm not making a statement on him as an artist. I'm just saying he put a very granola, very hippy dippy, mellow thing. And, you know, that yep. wasn't what he, you know, that wasn't his life. Right. The other is Joni Mitchell, who is strikingly genuine in her music. And, and very West Coast, you know, very Laurel Canyon. Yes. Um, so there's never any of that tension. The other one, and he crops up in just one song, and I'll bring it up when we get there, is Tom Waits, 
And I love Tom Waits, but that guy's full of it. I mean, that whole thing is an act. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely. So he's not even, he's not even like distorting something. He just, he's, I mean, cause he's an LA dude or was, I guess, but he just made up a whole nother persona, right. you know? So when you think of those contemporaries, mm-hmm. you know, and those are the guys that cropped up the most on this album to me, Billy does not go wholesale into any of those sort of personas, nor does he go wholesale into his own persona. You know, right. and you end up in this sort of queered, uncanny valley yeah. where he's he's kind of really trying to be West Coast. But if you listen, what makes it interesting is the times where he just can't or just refuses to. And we'll never know which one it was. My lens for this has been, where is he not West Coast even when he's trying to be? That's a fair point. And that's a bit of my take on it as well. You figure this is 1974, so it came out in October. So it would have been mm-hmm. recorded earlier in that year. Billy, by this point has been out in California for at least a year, year and a half. Piano Man was done out there and, you know, the song was inspired by working at the executive room out there. So by this point, Billy had been out in L.A. for a year or two. And clearly, as we've come to learn from Turnstiles, he couldn't wait to get back home. He couldn't wait (laughs) to get to New York. So to me, this is an album that is just the product of his environment. He is immersed in the whole Laurel Canyon music scene and what's going on there, but is at the same time a guy who can't wait to get out. I should also mention, obviously, Elton John, uh, the Honky Chateau, Tumbleweed Connection sort of era of his albums weighs in heavily here as well, which doesn't help my thesis at all, but (laughs) I can't not mention that. (laughs) Right. But yeah, to your point, you definitely hear that tension creeping in and, and the tension that informed his next move. With him talking about not being ready to do the album and kind of being pushed prematurely to do it, you know, I wonder if he was kind of feeling the lack of inspiration where he was out there. It wasn't his environment, so he just wasn't yeah. getting what he needed to write. I mean, granted, he wrote 10 songs that ended up on this album, and there's some great ones that we'll get into for sure, but... Mm-hmm. you know, he clearly wasn't feeling it. And then, you know, move back to New York, get a new casting crew of musicians, and he was off to the races. That change of scenery yeah. did so much for him. People make a lot of uh, allusions to to Billy's music being very Broadway. Uh, this one's a movie, man. This This is like a soundtrack. Not only in that he's painting a lot of scenes in the songs, uh, but also just the scope of it, the musical choices. It feels like a soundtrack along with him painting these pictures. I mean, the first two songs strikingly don't have forward-moving action or any sort of narrative. He's just describing what he's seeing. You know, you get the entertainer, it's full of a lot of biting things, and he jumps from idea to idea in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first two, most strikingly, you know, he just takes a snapshot and tells you what he's seeing at that moment. You know, and that crops up at the end of the album, too. But he definitely front-loads with two of his most sort of cinematic songs i think those two held up extraordinarily well over time especially mm-hmm. street life serenader that's just such a great song i definitely got the better treatment on songs in the attic but this one has a definite charm with the slide guitar that makes a difference in this one that drives home the west coast feel on this that's the only thing uh he loses with the live version trades in the slide for for some more muscle there's a lot more pedal steel banjo a lot more of the mm-hmm. americana and like you said the west coast stuff that was going on there that 
is all over this record. And there's a lot more um, big guitars in the later treatments of these songs. As we mentioned in the intro, this is the first one where he's using synthesizers. And in particular, my old favorite, the Mini Moog, is all over this thing. All like, over he was this clearly album. a kid with a new toy. That's, a, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. I mean, this was such a new thing for him. You could tell that he thought it was so fun. It's all over the place. I mean, I'm just looking through the track list. I'm like, yep, it's on here. It's on here. It's on here. And it's like, it's all over. It's like he couldn't get enough of it. To his credit, he molded it a lot of times to really fit the songs. It's definitely all over, but it wasn't like, and all of a sudden, you know, Rick Wakeman wandered in. Yeah. When he uses it on uh, Great Suburban Showdown, it sounds way different than The Entertainer. The Entertainer, I love that he almost makes it sound like a bagpipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you get a hold of the, you would send me over the uh, the YouTube of uh, just the piano, some guitar, and the Moog. And there's this like tuba part, womp, 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 womp. Yeah, going it's on like this background. kind of bass thing going on down low. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, so he almost makes it sound like a jug band on that one. And then um, I guess Great Suburban Showdown, it almost sounds like a harmonica. You know, he gives it that sort of uh, like Stevie Wonder harmonica playing kind of feel when you really just get the one note instead of the Bob Dylan-y gasping half the the reeds. It's kind of similar to like the harmonica part in like Billy the Kid. Just a nice clean single line floating through. And yeah, Mm -hmm. he does use the Moog um, in, in that way on that for sure. This album in general just is not talked about much. And I was kind of going through my collection, trying to find out how many versions of it I have. Because as Mm -hmm. you all know by now, I've got probably (laughs) every, you know, American pressing of everything. When it was originally released, it was obviously on vinyl. That was the main format. Back in the day, this was before they used to barcode everything. So there's no barcode on the on the jacket or anything like that. And it's the traditional red Columbia logo with the orange print around it or whatever. And then uh, Street Life Serenade actually also got a uh, quadraphonic release. This was a new technology in the 70s to where an album would be instead of two channel stereo, there would be four channels. The technology was as such to where to get the four channel effect, you had to have the proper equipment, but it would also mm-hmm. still play on a stereo turntable. And I actually sent Jack, I sent him um, the quad mix of it and it's different. It's certainly a different mix. You, oh, you yeah. hear so many different elements that were buried in the stereo mix that really come to life. And there's some different reverb choices and it it feels like a different listening experience when you listen to it as opposed to the, um, the stereo mix, I think. Yeah. There's a lot more room in the mix. You feel like you're sitting in the middle of it. You feel like the instruments are more spaced out. One thing you could put your finger on is uh, a lot of the low end organ. Those like organ rolls on weekend song really come out. Yeah. I noticed that too, for sure. One thing that's different too, the um, the quadraphonic release is a little bit different. In the, the top right of the front cover is the quadraphonic logo printed directly on the mm-hmm. jacket. It says quadraphonic. The quadraphonic disc is fully compatible and may be played on conventional stereo equipment. Well, they thought that quadraphonic was going to take the place of stereo, just like stereo took the place of mono and made mono obsolete. But right. They, it just never caught on because now, now you had to have four speakers in your house and... 
Only yeah, and a whole new setup. For it. And people weren't r- yeah. willing to buy new equipment for it. You know, with stereo to mono, it you know it, it was a bit different, but mono to stereo, I should say. One yeah. other thing that's kind of cool about it too is the, the the actual label on the vinyl is different. When you have the the original Columbia is the red. Um, yeah. The quadraphonic release is the label is gold, and the, mm. it's it's red printing around it. Yeah, that almost looks like the classical press. Yeah, it's very, very reminiscent of that. And then so instead of just seeing Columbia around it and having the walking eye, it says Columbia and then the walking eye and then it says quadraphonic. And then there's there's this logo that says SQ. And I believe the Q means quadraphonic. Maybe it's stereo quadraphonic. I'm not totally sure. My pressing, I actually still have this sleeve it came in. Um, Because, you know, we mentioned that the original Street Life Serenade didn't have any kind of jacket or anything. It was just a plain sleeve. Well, the quadraphonic mm-hmm. thing, when they were trying to get this off the ground, had this whole sleeve insert mm-hmm. just with all this different equipment and this whole write-up about the quadraphonic stuff. It's pretty crazy. The back is essentially the history and the technology of it. It shows yeah. how it all works. Oh, wow. And then it's got a listing of all the titles that Columbia has put out with Quadraphonic. Huh. Yeah. Um, and then, so obviously after that, there was the cassette and eight track. And I actually have that too, of course, the eight track. Wow. Yeah. Pretty I don't crazy. think I've ever seen a Billy Joel eight track. I have a couple eight tracks, but no Billy Joel's. Eight track was weird because it was like you had program one, program two, three, and four, you know, you got like mm-hmm. halfway through and then it flipped. So it's like sometimes you would have things split. Program one has root beer rag part one. And then program two has root beer rag conclusion. And then root beer rag is again on program three. So I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Maybe it's yeah, a misprint. If you're listening and you'll hear it click, the music dips out for a second and it goes yeah. on to the next one. You know, obviously in the early 80s, you know, as CDs came out, it was released on CD. And then Columbia re-released everything in 98 with remasters. And there's actually been two, quote unquote, modern day reissues of the vinyl. So there's been one from Europe and then one from the U.S. So the one from Europe was uh, the company um, Music on Vinyl, which this reissue came out in 2012. I used to be in contact with Jeff Schock, um, Billy's archivist, who passed away a few years ago. And um, because I would always buy all these reissues, I would kind of report to him. I was like the quality control guy, you know, how the <laughs> artwork looked and how everything looked. And oh, wow. um, this Music on Vinyl pressing of... Um, Street Life Serenade looks fantastic. Like the graphics are super clear. You know, some reissues, it's like they took the original LP and they scanned it. And you can see like scan marks and just, you know, the digital artifacts and stuff like that. But this looks super clean and super clear. Um, Yeah. And again, this came out from um, Music on Vinyl in 2012. And then there's a company called Friday Music, which is a U.S. based, which has done quite a few Billy Joel reissues on vinyl. They released it in 2014. The coloring on this version is super vibrant. Yeah, um, you can even see that through the Skype. If you look at like the original one back to back, it's like night and day. It's mm-hmm. it's much more rich. Uh, the, around the painting, it's kind of like a cream cover on all the originals. And then this reissue, it's they made it all white. Certainly a big difference. But these reissues both sound really good. And I can't imagine that they've sold super well other than to people mm-hmm. like me yeah i was about to say yeah with this album being so doc you know under documented i mean i couldn't imagine like a deluxe edition of this one really coming out and if so I what's mean, out there in the archives that could get included because i mean i i feel like most billy stuff is leaked at this point oh yeah i mean the trading no- world and youtube and everything 
If there's no demos, there's certainly no B-sides. There's yeah. no Elvis Presley Boulevard that didn't make it on here. Like we talked about, I mean, he struggled just to get these 10. So there's there was yeah. nothing left in the can, right. I think, for this one. Yeah. Let's run down the list of who produced and played on the record real quick before we get into the songs. Obviously, music and lyrics is Billy Joel. The album was produced by Michael Stewart. And it was arranged by Billy and Michael Stewart. Now, that's an interesting credit right there because this is the last Billy Joel album where it has an arrangement credit. Because from there on out, it was essentially a full Phil Ramone and full band collaborative effort in the arrangements. So it was just everybody. And so this was the last time the arrangements were just credited to the two of them. The credits are on the back of the album jacket. So that's different mm-hmm. than a lot of the albums as well. And then you you have starting off with a thanks. It says, thanks to Barry Fassman for his invaluable assistance. I don't know what Barry did, but thank you. <laughs> and then we have sound by Ron Malo. Keyboards and Moogs, Billy Joel. Drums, Ron Tut. Bass is Emery Gordy. Larry Netchel and Wilton Felder. And then you have pedal steel and banjo by Tom Whitehorse. And then the guitar players, you have Gary Dalton. Richard Bennett, Mike Deasy, Raj Rather, Al Hertzberg, Don Evans, Art Munson, and Michael Stewart. And then you have the conga, Joe Clayton, and organ, William Smith. And then it was recorded at Devonshire Sound, North Hollywood, and mastered at Artisan. And then lastly, it says, thanks to Brian Ruggles for anything we left out. So of this cast of characters, Brian Ruggles is the sole survivor who is still with him to this day. So he's been Billy's sound man essentially from the beginning. And he was, you know, like 19, 20 years old when he started with Billy. (laughs) He's been with him a long, long time. Yeah, you you don't realize that one of the things Billy did was keep a lot of people on that long. And as a result, it's why he gets such great stage shows today in part. I mean, they're they're subtle. They're not flashy, but they're so perfect. And I think we talked about this before, but a lot of that's because they had such steady employment that they could experiment and they could like find the latest technologies and ideas they had the platform to try them out on a tour things like that because they had such a stable crew you know and it's funny that he had somebody else play organ i'm kind of curious about that because we know he plays organ you know right and he he loves it you know there's always that thing where like he you know he always wanted to be the organ player in the corner of the stage on a bar in a bar band you know so he loves the hammond organ yeah I'm, i'm curious william smith what he plays on it doesn't say organ for Billy. Yeah, I mean, he's leaving your Los Angelinos and Weekend Song, and I would I guess it could be either one, but I would say Weekend Song. It's interesting. Having seen Billy play Hammond organ, obviously on the early live versions, you know, it was Richie Cannata playing the organ uh, live. Yeah. I wonder if that's the Will Smith guys playing the solos and whatnot on that, because it doesn't, to me, it doesn't quite feel like Billy playing. But again... Aside from a credit, there's not much more information to, to find. So I wonder if anybody happens to know what this guy's involvement was. You know, it was it was he the only guy playing organ on the entire record? I'm I'm very curious, but uh, again, it's super hard to find much info. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what the sessions were like. You know, he's on a major label, but you know, he's not a big star. You know, how there are no demos really kind of throws me. Was that maybe part of why he felt this was uh, rushed and underdeveloped? Maybe he just brought these things into the studio and they just did some uh, head sessions, you know, and just blew through them right there, which would be why he needed an organ player. Hypothetically, if Weekend Song was like cut mostly live, they all just did it right there. That's that's a fair point. There's a plethora of demos going through the Piano Man era Mm -hmm. and obviously all the Cold Spring Harbor and stuff prior to that and around that. It seems like, again, like there's a giant audio gap of unreleased demos or any other material around this time. And I did quite a bit of searching and I I couldn't find anything. There's one notable 
bootleg from a couple months before this came out. It's uh, live at the Orpheum Theater, May 14th of 1974. It's pretty much all piano, man, except for The Entertainer. And that yep. was the only one that's on here. So one would assume he would be road testing at least a few of these ahead of time. So right. I think it's telling that The Entertainer was the only one that was on there. And, you know, maybe it is just in retrospect because The Entertainer is easily the most well-known of here. Yeah. But The Entertainer always seemed to stick out to me. It's very different from the other ones. Looking at this from May of that year, I would hazard to say that was the one he had written and he had really fleshed out. Yeah. And maybe some of the other ones were were thrown together pretty quickly. Yeah, I think you're right, uh, because especially lis- listening to this early live version, let's listen to a snippet of it now so you can see what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I wrote a song a couple of weeks ago called The Entertainer. But, uh, I like the title of it, but I'm not going to change the title. I don't care about that other song. So uh, I'm going to wait till that other song dies down. So, uh, so I know uh, you've never heard this before. You've probably never heard a lot of this before. Yeah. See if you can hear the words when they sing, because they should get me in a lot of trouble. And I 
So what's crazy about this is the arrangement is totally different. And that's not terribly uncommon when it's something that you've just written. So that's understandable, but it is vastly different. The The feel, the groove and everything is is very different. Um, the Moog isn't there yet. Um, it's all piano. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's no banjo on the stage or anything like that. So it's a super different arrangement. You know, now that we've kind of laid out our thesis and our ideas here let's go track by track for a minute now you know the first sort of weird thing about this album is that the title track is just slightly different than the actual title of the album and that's caused a Um, lot of confusion especially when you know we were talking about tours you know with the doug stegmeyer episode i had seen in print a couple times people calling the tour that followed the street life serenade tour but i've also heard like liberty in an interview or two and some other folks call it the street life serenader tour it's even not a complete consensus on what the tour was called because <laughs> of the confusion between the two titles so yeah so the song is street life serenader part of what makes the song seem out of context to the album cover is it sounds like sounds like it's a nighttime song sounds nocturnal you know you can almost see them under like a uh, street lamp the songs in the attic version is good I think he traded in the slide guitar or the pedal steel for muscle. Definitely more of a West Coast feel with that on it. This was, to me, one song that really that ended up on Songs in the Attic that I really do like the original version as well. You know, a lot of those were drastic improvements on songs. This version holds its own. I do like the pedal steel because that's something that Billy never brought to the live show. It's something nice that you don't hear anywhere live. And so that's something I do like about this recording for sure. Two things in this that speak to my theory of him just having this like weirded out version of the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Just that whole Uncanny Valley feel. First is the line Shopping Center Hero. This song is so romantic, you know, like you can't get much more like, you know, sweeping and cinematic than this idea of this lone troubadour. Yeah. In what, a strip mall? 
what's he outside the CVS? Like, what, what's you know? It just, right. it, you yeah. know, if you listen for it, it takes you out of it. You know what I mean? Like, he really just subverts this idea that he's building up. And to that point, there's that self-reflexive line, needs no vast arrangements. You know, right. this is a pretty carefully and heavily arranged song. There's a couple bona fide, just down and dirty rockers on this album. This mm-hmm. is not one of them. Like, this is the soundtrack to a movie. You know, this isn't real life what he's talking about. Billy really found his stride when he was being amazingly genuine and, and amazingly detailed and nuanced about like real lives and, and, and real people that he knew. He's so clearly not doing this on this song and a couple others on this album. Exactly, yeah, it feels like a film. I'm uh, reading through the lyrics and there's a couple of lyrics in this that I never noticed. You know, when you mentioned need no vast arrangements to do their harmonizing. Yeah. I don't know why I never noticed that it said that before until I'm reading them in right. front of my face. How about Child of Eisenhower? That's a thing I bumped on too. I was like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that means. I know who Eisenhower is, but what's that supposed to signify? Kids from the 50s, post-war. Yep. You know, if you were World War II, you'd be Roosevelt or Truman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when you're thinking, you know, he wanted this to be a Midwest small town, you know, this it's the 50s. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was, this is 20 years later, but that's seems like that's what he had in mind yeah and it's funny now zeroing in on that child of eisenhower new world celebrator there's a this sort of timeless old-timey feel to this whole street life serenade thing you yeah. know traveling musician but just pushing it to the second half of the century i guess talking about eisenhower and like the new world post world war ii the, the suburban boom the rock and roll everything else right dragging these ideals and these archetypes into the modern world seems to be how he's kicking off the album and you know another thing with this song there's no chorus. That's true. Five verses. There's deceptively no chorus because he keeps starting dances with Street Life Serenaders. It gives you that repetition without actually having a chorus. So the first verse starts with Street Life Serenader. The second verse is Midnight Masquerader. Third yeah. verse, you have Street Life Serenaders with an S. Right. So again, now mm-hmm. there's the third version of the title, right? <laughs> and then for the fourth verse, you've got Street Life Serenaders again. And then the right. fifth is Midnight Masqueraders. So there, there is some movement in here that um that I didn't pick up on before. Sense of gathering, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he's going from being lonely to uh, defining his, his tribe, so to speak. It's by a decent stretch the longest song on the record and shortest mm-hmm. lyrically, other than the instrumentals, obviously. But. Yeah, I mean, he does a lot with this one, you know, with, with those instrumental breaks. I mean, there's one guitar solo, but it's pretty close to the melodic theme. And yeah. uh, Well, then oh, you have the, the breakdown just prior to it, you know, yeah, where everything drops yeah. out, I, but just the lone piano. I love that. Oh, I love that part, yeah. I couldn't name anyone else that, that would take that move. But I named four other artists, and not one of them pulled off anything close to that. Why is the song sad? I didn't think of that until I was listening to it again today. It's a bittersweet song, but why? He's not sad in the song. He seems to like be celebrating this person. Yeah, but there's something about it that just does have a sadness or a regret or something, something there. I yeah, I, but I can't completely yeah. confidently pinpoint what it is. I I almost feel like the shows would end with souvenir. It was like the party's over, and then there's this. <laughs> I feel like a bit of that with this song too. I don't yeah. know. It just feels like a reflective song in a way for some reason. I feel like uh, all of a sudden we can do an entire episode just on this one song. I mean, you know, you, I mean, you know, you look this over and, and we can opine a whole lot about, you know, how these lyrics pertain to his his exact station at that point. You know, hold no grand illusions, need no stimulation, mm-hmm. working hard for wages. All right. All right. How about this is sort of um, he's on the treadmill touring. We know he's not 
really into touring that not that he's not into touring but he he's not finding it amazing you know the record company's on his ass to put out a new album this is almost like his i remember when when this was so much simpler i remember when i just wanted to play music Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden here i am in the middle of his maelstrom yeah so think about this too like that's the whole thing because he's doing that one single note like a single person Mm -hmm. and then the whole band just comes crashing in you know it's very turbulent yes kind of engulfs that one note he kept playing this is how the record opens with a five yeah. plus tune. That really, really takes you somewhere. Yeah. As you saw, man, sit down with the lyrics on this one. Follow the lyrics along with the ups and downs of the music, because this one's got a lot of dynamic range on it. Obviously, clearly, they were playing it in 8081 because of the songs in the attic. Did it just come out for that so they could record it? Or, you know, was this played much between 74 and 81? I haven't seen too much evidence of this appearing in set lists along the way. During the garden residency, it popped up once or twice. But I want to touch on the cover and the the front cover and the back cover. We talked about it a bit, but you had the uh, front cover painting was done by Brian Hagiwara. And then the back cover mm-hmm. photo was done by Jim Marshall. And then art direction and design was Ron Coro. And something yeah. that's interesting about that back cover where it's Billy sitting on that yellow chair that's facing backward. Mm-hmm. Come to find out that he had his wisdom teeth pulled just a couple days before this photo shoot. And <laughs> that's why his cheeks are all puffy. I could set be list FM is showing 10 times. So three in the 70s, 75 and 76, and then like six times uh, in the 80s. But four of them were June of 1980, like a four show run at Madison Square Garden and then which is where you know, twice the, the attic version I think was recorded yeah so it seems like he really just pulled this one back out for that it's a shame because man it's a great song I mean but it is again when you've got you know a set like Billy's I mean that eats up five and a half minutes of your set list and by now he's got so many bona fide hits that he kind of has to play so I get yeah. it but man I, I would love to see this one come back out I wonder if this is one of those songs that really benefits from being orchestrated for a very small rock band. You know, yep. you put too much in, you get you end up in that uncanny valley again. I don't know. I mean, I still want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> right. It certainly, as we've heard, suits really well a smaller ensemble. So why don't we go into uh, song number two? Which is almost the exact opposite <laughs> in, in, in some ways, is Los Angelinos. This is not a sit and listen closely song. This is his beat song for the record. Well, one of anyway. This is a song that really shows what an exile he is. Uh, like I said before, you know, his best songs write from such an intimate understanding of his subjects. In this case, he's so obviously an outsider. Yeah, with Los Angelinos, that's another keyboard-driven song. No piano going on that I can tell either. Yeah. Billy is playing the electric piano, which gives it a little more grit. And this, to um, me, this song is just built for a tiny club. Like, just a small band just rocking in a little club. Oh, yeah, it's a riff song for sure. The outro is um, deceptively tricky, rhythmically. Uh, the way that his two hands bounce off each other when you know when the band comes in in the beginning of the song similar kind of situation because you have like the guitars and the bass but what billy is playing on the keyboard underneath that is so counter to the main riff so to speak but it works so dang well i i think that's a hallmark of billy i think that's sort of the kind of plays into that idea that like as much as he wants to be just a rock dude he, he's always just he's a little more sophisticated in what he does. Like, he couldn't write the riff to, like, a whole lot of love if you put a gun to his head, you know? <laughs> like, his his right hand would have to do something else on top of that. Yeah, but at the riff. same time, 
he is able to package it in such a way to where someone who typically would just like the whole lot of loves in the world can get mm-hmm. into this as well. He yeah. is able to pack so much intricacy in a pop tune and it's incredible. So these lyrics um, are something. He's painting such a picture about basically like nobody's from here. We're all outsiders and I think I'm the biggest one of them all. Yeah. But some of these references and some of these lines, you know, driving sleek new sports cars with their New York cowboys, making love with the natives in their Hollywood places. It just sounds like Hollywood in 1974. I don't know. Maybe it's not that it's not genuine. Maybe that he is just uh, scratching at the veneer that these people are are so obviously putting on. Because you see it just creep in, making up for all the time gone by. And now that I'm, I'm actually reading them, there's so much slant rhyme in this song, which makes me think that he didn't sit down and write it as much as just kind of riff this stuff. Yeah. Because you you feel like you wouldn't sit down and make some of these rhymes, but you might say them if you're just screwing around and, and, and spitting out lines. It's you know? very, like reading it as a lyric, it's like it doesn't feel like a song structure. But with the way he sings, you can connect these dots that a lot of people don't. Yeah, beaches and reefers, you know, like. Yeah doesn't rhyme you know but but the way he says it it does ladies and faded i mean yeah some of those <laughs> rhymes are pretty pretty stretch you know pretty stretchy so to speak i'm enjoying them a lot more with us sitting here reading them i didn't yeah. really focus that closely on the construction of these songs you know i kind of just grabbed the themes mm-hmm. there's a little more to it now that we're looking at it like the linchpin is that making up for all the time gone by. Like these people are trying so hard. And it's funny making up for all the time gone by, man. That's such an old person, not old person, but you know, middle-aged thing to consider making up for all the time gone making by. When he's clearly talking about people in their yeah. young 20s, you know? And he makes them all sound like they're having midlife crises. Well, like, you know, LA, I mean, seems like it's always been, but I know especially in the 70s, it was like everyone's out there trying to make it in Hollywood. Everyone's an actor. Everyone's yeah. a singer. Everyone's a this. You're my long guy, but no, I'm not really not a long guy. I'm a I'm a I'm a director. Yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. <laughs> is trying to make it in the business out there. And then we've got uh, the Great Suburban Showdown, which is the third song here. I connected with this one early on because I guess I grew up in mm-hmm. the suburbs. Even so, some of the word choices were a little meh to me, but I I could I could get the picture he was painting of boredom in suburbia. I could yeah. just feel no. It's not only boredom in suburbia. It's throwing it right after Los Angelinos. Such a perfect narrative contrast. It just makes you think he's out in L.A. Mm-hmm. and now he's going home to the, his boring to see his parents. Because like Los Angelinos, you know, it ends Los Angelinos all come from somewhere. It's so familiar, yeah. these foreign faces. And then the very next line is flying yeast on a plane, drinking all that free champagne. So it is almost yeah. like him talking about life in L.A. And now he's going home to visit family. And, you know, I, I made some changes to my style, things like that. Like, you know, he's kind of one of those guys coming home with all the, uh, the yep. hippest threads, man, the Sheboygan. <laughs> right. Some of the lines I kind of, I know it should be fun, but I think I should have packed my gun. Got that old suburban showdown <laughs> in my mind. Like there's a couple of the, the lines in here that kind of, I felt like could have been better. <laughs> you know, some of these are pretty straightforward, but I totally identify. I sit around with the folks, tell the same old tired jokes, bored to death yeah. on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, you can... You can totally picture it. The one that always stuck out to me was outdoor barbecue. What the hell else kind of barbecue are you running, pal? <laughs> right. That's rushing an album when you got to leave an outdoor barbecue to, to make sure you got enough syllables. Let's run this thread. 
right? Okay. So we saw in uh, Street Life Serenader, we was talking about Child of Eisenhower. Now we're looking at Los Angelinos. Now these kids are out in L.A. You're assuming then that this kid's young in 1974 and he's going home. You know, his parents were, were probably adults in World War II. You know, they were the, the greatest generation or whatever. So there's that thread that runs through the first three songs. Yeah. See, he's the new, you know, the new world celebrator and everything. And now he's, you know, peaked it in L.A. And now he's got to come back home for a minute. In this song, he, he leaves again. But, you know, that plays into the same, uh, not narrative, but the same motif or whatever in those in these first three songs. Yeah, I, I can see them all connecting that way for sure. The Moog is all over the intro, especially on this one and the intro and the ending yeah. and all that. I mean, I like that he was having fun with it, but this is a song I kind of would like to hear with that out of the mix. Yeah. And just more piano. Arrangement-wise, it's a pretty flat song. It's definitely a little out of place. I appreciate it. Something happening in it. The comment, you know, it's kind of a flat song. That is kind of like the content of the lyric too where he's just like going back home and everything's kind of the same and not interesting yeah. and just you know what I mean so it almost kind of reflects the emotion of the tune <laughs> you know that's something he said in uh, in one of his master classes that at one point he said Summer Highland Falls represented a real big jump for him writing a song with the lyrics and the music really meshed and you know with that in mind you wonder if this was like the step right before it where he really used the music in a way that supported the lyrics like that thinking about this thread where he's out in Los Angeles and then he comes home to tell his parents he's staying out there yep. and then his next album starts off with Say Goodbye to Hollywood like so much for that pal <laughs> right exactly so after uh, Great Suburban Showdown uh, number four here is and it's the first instrumental we got Root Beer Rag this is a fun one it is it definitely is it was the name of his newsletter for a long time Root Beer Rags yep <laughs> yeah you know the uh, official Billy Joel fanzine so to speak um, yeah it was Root Beer Rag and even the innocent man tour program i believe was branded like the tour edition of root beer rag on most big tours like the artist will do like a tour book you know a tour oh, program okay. you can buy at the concert right 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 the mm-hmm. one for the innocent man tour i believe was even branded it said like root beer rag tour edition or something that's interesting they were using it throughout the 80s even i always thought the yes and this was like a precursor to my life like those background vocals I don't you know what I'm th- talking about? No. Like, yeah, I don't... yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe it was a synthesizer. A I always thought it was yes. No, I think it's like... Was he rocking the vocoder too? That's... Be like Frampton style? <laughs> maybe it's a vocoder and a guitar. It's funny because I'm like, there's still yes. What are you talking about? But now I totally do. <laughs> the first time around is definitely the synth. Come on, those are yes. The second right. time? Go right have it on this a minute in. All right, guys. All right, let's take it to you all. What do you think? <laughs> I always thought it was either straight guitar or keyboard the entire time. Do you think it's a yeah? Jack's on the yeah side. I'm on the fence. <laughs> I'm going to have to revisit this later. Tell us what you think. Either way, they they recreated that timbre on, on my left. That was a yes. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. this is not an instrumental. I'll put a small amount of money. Is what you're saying. <laughs> in a technical sense, yeah. I, I wanted to open the lyric um, booklet. Lyrics, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Copyright, 1974. Joel songs. <laughs> ASCAP Publishing. Used by permission. Uh, what's his, Artie Rip got the however percent of those three years. <laughs> yeah, he got two of them. <laughs> I love the form of ragtime, by the way. I love how it, I love, I love that it's always that theme, and then they go off, they do something, they come back to that theme mm-hmm. over and over again. It's a, it's very satisfying it's very fun you know on this one going back to my subversive motif it's the moog that really makes this like you yeah. know what 
what I mean? Because it's like, it's so traditional with the latest and greatest in synthesizer technology. That really this, you know, makes it not, At that point, yeah, yeah, 80 year old musical form. We talked about in our intro with obviously Root Beer Rag and then the last tune, which we'll talk about later, Mexican Connection, the two instrumentals. You know, there's been a running theme throughout Billy's career that lyrics were always tough for him. And he's an incredible lyricist. You've got two songs that were instrumentals. You know, I mean, look, he did fantasies and delusions. He's written thematical stuff without lyrics since River mm. Dreams. And I feel like the music part comes more natural to him and he has to work harder at the lyric. And maybe the pressure of having to crank this album out, he only was able to eat fully fleshed you know vocal songs together i guess that was always sort of the the assumption about it that's why he did that it's placed interesting because you know the first three songs kind of you can tie it together like we were talking about mm -hmm. and then you throw it to root beer rag which is like palate cleanser so to speak yeah i tried real hard to keep the theme going with this one and i could not do it i couldn't even pretend it was like intermission nothing worked like no because after this there's no uh, yeah, yeah especially when you're looking at the fifth <laughs> song here roberta i mean come on right the yeah. process. Uh, now he's lonely. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is an interesting song. Um, closes out side one on the record and cassette. Um, Roberta is possibly Billy's only song about a prostitute. I like that this is the first time we hear uh, some real aggravated Billy on It's Tough for Me, It's Tough for You. I think that's where you, you kind of heard his next vocal direction. Yeah. You know, just on those parts right there. This is a song that when I went back and re listened to it, I really got into this one went back and listened to it twice just for enjoyment because i re really just got a kick out of it just the way it's set up i love that instrumental break in the middle it's very joni mitchell it reminds me a lot of court spark um oh, she yeah. does that a lot where you know she'll just be strumming along and then she just throws in this musical idea once or twice and then comes back at it yeah, yeah i see yeah, that that's what that yep. reminded me of yeah. yeah and there's some like nice um, vocal layers some like oohs and ahs going on with with that yeah it's a real nice yeah. musical piece there jokingly i said you know yeah it's about a prostitute but it's just his story of like falling in love with someone in a very different world basically um, you know i mean and there's a theme if, you know follow me here you know the, like even you know you go as far as uptown girl you know i know very mm -hmm. different <laughs> situation but it's a guy yeah. talking about the girl he loves and she's in a whole nother world from him and then again it goes to the theme of billy kind of being the outsider in a way you know where it's like he falls for the woman who he has a hard time connecting with in that way because she's in a whole new world different world than him what I keyed into is that, I don't know that he wrote that many, but this is a great schlub song. This is a song about a schlub. Yeah. Like, there's, a, there's a guy in my neighborhood, and every time I hear this, I picture that guy. Right, right. <laughs> oh, sorry, sack you. Uh, did you ever hear Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis by Tom Waits? I don't know that one, no. They're night and day, these two songs. Really? But that's my point is that uh -huh. you know this is one of those times when west coast is he's trying to be billy reveals he's not west coast because he's not romanticizing any of this tom waits song is like it's really like seedy and down and dirty but it's so seedy and down and dirty right uh i stopped taking dope i quit drinking whiskey my old man tr plays the trombone and works at the track like you know it just sounds smoky scene. like it yeah it's all smoky it's <laughs> clearly not genuine you know you know what i like about this song is you know billy's not afraid to be a schlub a rock star no does not worry about not having enough money to call up that hooker that he's actually fond of who well you know like he got kind of got a little flack later on like oh it's such a weak song it's just written about a prostitute it's not that great nobody else wrote it like that sting didn't do it when he wrote roxanne again it feels like that's the only way he can 
get her interest. I'd ask you over, but I can't afford you. Like that's the only way he's getting this girl's attention is by paying for her. And he's got, he just can't find his words to tell her how he feels. Yeah, he can't tell her, he can't connect with her. You know, I only see what, you, what you're paid to show me. I feel like he's talking to himself here because he's not talking directly to her. I almost feel like he's saying in this song what he can't say to her. I always thought the it's tough for me, it's tough for you is like, I kind of thought he was like on the phone with her being like, I know you have it rough. I got a rough too, you know. Like, right, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's kind of like just pacing his room, like coming up with these things he would want to say. Where it's like, you know, you know the, the sometimes a fantasy video, it's him and this woman on the phone <laughs> going through it. And then the video reveals that he th was thinking about the entire thing and she never even answered the phone. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? So the, the, like the video, oh, yeah. the fantasy video reveals it like, wow, this only happened in his head. It's just completely sidestepping the fact that it's a phone sex line, but that's right. fine. So I guess it's Billy's, well, I guess you wouldn't call them prostitutes, but so he's got two songs in that vein. <laughs> you, you know, it's so funny. It's like, you know, only the good, die, you know, the Catholic church had such issues with only the good die young, but like Roberta, no problem. I mean, well, I know it wasn't a single, well, Roberta wasn't like, on the radio. <laughs> You find me the priest that got this far into Street Life Serenade, you know? Roberta, yeah, Roberta rounds out side one. The original LP, instead of saying side A and side B or side one and side two, it was one side and then another side. Was That's it really? how it was labeled, yeah. So that was one I, side. I, I just picked up a copy of this on vinyl a couple months ago. I played it once or twice. I didn't pay that much attention to it. That's funny. Yeah. And so side two yeah. begins another side. And with that, we've got the song that has carried on through Billy's career more than I'd say anything else on this album. So much so oh, that easily. it made the greatest hits record and he still plays it live. And that is the entertainer. You almost don't want to spend too much time on it on this episode because like there's all these obscure ones to talk about, but you know, right. I guess this is the time to get into it, you know. Um, well, we, you know, we kind of talked about before where this seems to be the one that was really put together. You know, we, there's a bootleg of it from a couple of months before. Get a hold of some isolated tracks. You realize how much more went into this one. On the bootleg from the Orpheum show, he mentions that he had just written it a couple of weeks prior. And so yeah. it was super fresh. And I think if he had only written it a couple of weeks prior, how long had the band had it? <laughs> you right. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's kind of evident when you listen to that early live version because they're kind of still feeling their way through the song and the arrangement is so much different. Uh, one thing that I really love about the studio version is how the arrangement builds throughout. And you don't realize that there's stuff coming in and out a lot too. This is another one with no chorus. You That's know, another so thing I was going to mention too. It's yeah. just verse, verse, verse. But what gives it the dynamic change is the build. So it makes oh, it yeah. not yeah. feel so repetitive because you start out with, what's it, just the acoustic guitar and then mm -hmm. drums and bass come in and then you got banjos in another verse. And so it's just everything is building, building, building until you get to the last verse and it's just rocking. And I mean, that piano part's out of control. Uh, you don't realize it until, again, you, until you're really isolated because there's so much going on, but he's boogie-woogieing all over the place. Yes. That. This song was a single. I mentioned it in an early episode and I where I need to go back and actually clock it. So the context is The Entertainer was his response to Piano Man. How radio and record company kind of treated him with it and you know, they took Piano Man and chopped it up to three minutes and change for radio and all this kind of stuff. So he was going to make this song kind of 
clever, but also kind of pointing out some of the BS that goes on with it. The label, the vinyl label on the single 45 version of The Entertainer is clocked in at three minutes, five seconds. <laughs> and obviously with the lyric, if you want, if you're going to have a hit, you've got to make it fit. So they cut it down to 305. I really need to find out that's a legit 305 on the radio edit or someone was just being funny. <laughs> I guess it'd be funny. I, I'd be inclined to say nobody was screwing around with it just because like that was for radio. You know, yeah, that's like, a good point. They, they measure but, everything to the second so you're probably right. yeah i like your theory better though <laughs> yeah so you know root beer reg is on there which is kind of a nod to um to like scott joplin who wrote the song called the entertainer, the entertainer. Yeah. right around the time the sting came out you know the movie the sting came out which probably featured the entertainer and on the orpheum bootleg he plays the entertainer for a minute the scott joplin version right before so it's funny just in that you know the same sense of like he's subverting everything on this album right you know the actual song the entertainer is so much more caustic you know like it's right. such like a an angry song where you know the the original one's like a little happy little ragtime thing and he's got a happy ragtime thing on this book, right the entertainer what's funny about that yeah. bit about him playing the entertainer in on that orpheum bootleg it sounded like there was some issue going on with the sound or something like that but he was just vamping yeah um while they were sorting something out you know obviously the people knew that ver- that entertainer because it was popular at the time and and he talks about this new song he just wrote called the entertainer and he's like i know that's called the entertainer he's like i don't care i'm not changing mine yeah. and there that's that billy joel attitude back then that i loved he's like hey man i don't care what that title of that one is i'm not changing mine <laughs> So yeah, when he was talking about the album itself, he said, uh, this is why people talk about the sophomore slump. You spend your youth building up material. Oh, what the hell that word is. I'm going to have to look this up. The word for the day. Let's say, see how I say it. Buildings Roman, a novel dealing with one person's formative years or sp- spiritual education. Damn. Okay. All right. Okay. So I got this now. Okay. This is why you talk about the sophomore slump. You spend your youth building up material. Crafting the building's roman that tells your story, and then in the middle of abruptly finding success and crashing in holiday inns, of being a band leader and wondering when the checks will arrive, you have a couple months to write 10 or 12 heartfelt new songs. By the way, remember the songs about how much of the road sucks have already been done and nobody wants to hear them. So yeah, even by 74, he had kind of had it. <laughs> yeah, wow. It, it is so true. A lot of people don't realize, it's like, oh, how come the next record didn't do well? It's because you have your entire career leading up to your first album to write that first album. Mm-hmm. So you're honing your craft and, you know, it's reason to, to say that, you know, the first 12 songs on your first album are your best 12 songs you've got to that point. And then you've got seven months, eight months to do album number two, when you may have had 20 years to get to album number one. A lot of people struggle with that. Piano Man did well as a single, as a song. And then obviously in Philadelphia, Captain Jack was a huge hit. So Columbia wanted him right back in the studio to capitalize on it. Song number two on another side (laughs) is Last of the Big Time Spenders. I'm going to say weakest song on the album. Agreed. Every time I hear it, I, I feel like I want to get more out of it than I do. I want I feel like I'm going to hear it one day and suddenly it's going to click like, oh, wow, the song really does something for me. But it just never gets off the ground. He's not the first person to sing about being poor. Quite frankly, he doesn't do it amazingly. You know, he doesn't yeah. have anything. To, he just doesn't have anything to add to that canon. I mean, you assume at this point that he's he's writing from his experience in the music business because even at this point he's talking about he's on the road and it's very stressful because like he's at their work but the checks aren't coming in you know whether yeah. he's waiting for royalties or like by the time they pay their expenses 
So, you know, yeah, I'm the last of the big time spenders, but I got no money coming in. Like, I'm paying all this money to go out on tour, all these, you know, but yeah. I'm not making any money for it. Yeah, it's just not done that. He's got that uh, Leon Russell thing going. If I want to hear it's like Leon Russell does it better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in this case, Leon, I mean, I know, you know, Billy's a chameleon and can really adapt to so many different vibes and styles so well. This is the one song that every time I come back to it, I'm just kind of like, it's there. There's got a nice dynamic lift, at least. That's sort of its um, saving mm-hmm. grace to me, is that sure. when it gets big, it gets nice and big, and recordings today are so compressed that you don't get loud, soft like that anymore. You know, I've revered Billy as a great lyricist over the years, as he is, but this, yeah, the lyrics just don't really speak to me. And You know what it is? He dips a toe in something. He doesn't He, he doesn't go all the way down the road. He doesn't commit. He's just like, it's like, ah, I guess you talk about this kind of thing, and he just throws a couple cliches out. I would pull this all the way up to This Is The Time on the bridge. Go back and you look at the lyrics of that one. They're so obviously stitched together. They're all sort of revolving around a theme, but they're actually pretty slapdash. I think just at that point, he had gotten a little better at when he had to uh, take out the old sewing needle. He could do it a little better yeah. by then. But this is just an example where he, like, he comes up with an idea, and instead of, like, you know, really digging deep and, and, and putting the details in, he just starts throwing out some cliches. And if I had to put my money on it, I would say this one probably has never been played live. Yeah, I could never imagine him even bothering. Ooh, ooh, I think we got one. Carnegie Hall, 1974. But he was opening for somebody. Oh, okay. I was going to say, because... Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. remember. I don't think he headlined Carnegie until 77, that infamous run there. The one, like, ridiculous thing I noticed here is that... Um, Many times, Ron Tut will crack the snare really hard on the first snare hit, and then softer on the second. That's all I. That's all he got. <laughs> He'd be like, pop, doom, pop. You know what I mean? Like the second one would be would be a little, a yeah. little softer, and he would yeah. lead with the first one. I love Liberty, and I'm so glad he became the guy. But I love a lot of what Ronnie Tut did on these records. Some real tasty stuff. Oh, you know, dipping back again, real quick. The Entertainer. Oh, yeah. Those fills and that what he's doing with the hi-hat and the kick drum. And (laughs) it's just so, hmm, the groove is just so good there. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot to um, to play that free and not committed to a beat and not make it obvious. Yeah. Um, There's there's an underlying pulse, but he's playing with it the whole time. I honestly, you know, last of the big time spenders don't really have much else to say about it. So after uh, last of big time spenders, you go into song three on side two which is Weekend Song. Listen, now, we, we, we talk about this on CW Post, but listening to it here, this song could have been great with better lyrics. He just, he throws it away on that. Not only the lyrics, but like, just something about the rhythm to it. He could have had a lot of latitude to really riff on some interesting vocal rhythms. And he just really threw it away on something that sounds like he was just trying to write a working man's hit and being like, well, maybe, you know, maybe Middle America will get into this thing. You know, like... Right. Maybe this will be this, the the song people think of on Friday afternoon, and they go to happy hour and play it on the jukebox. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think I like it musically better than lyrically. It moves nice. I like the guitars up front on it. Yeah, but like you know, the whole it's back breaking, bone shaking, belly aching, hard working, <laughs> two more hours to go. It's something. It's like written like a guy who doesn't have much experience in corporate America. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because you don't get the impression this dude's in a factory. For some reason, it's like, ah, this guy's just slumming it in an office. In an office. That's exactly (laughs) my vibe. Like, yeah, I don't feel like it's not a factory worker, for sure. It feels like somebody working in an office. It's keeping me alive doing nine to five, and I ain't got nothing to show. 
Yeah, have something to show in the 70s. Try doing it now. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, he, well, here's another New York kind of reference, though, in it, though. Like, pick me up at the station, meet me at the train. That's not L.A. Yeah, That's Long not Island, L.A. at all. Yeah. from Manhattan. You know what else he does in this one? He puts on that, like, big New Orleans thing that CCR does, where it's hard waking. And he's CCR doing that kind of Steve Winwoody kind of vocal, where mm-hmm. he kind of goes in that place where whenever you see him actually sing like that, he's kind of, like, tilting his neck, like, kind of cutting his air <laughs> supply to kind of get that tone. That's a great catch about the train, too. See? Okay, here you go. This tells you right here it is corporate America working it off. Seven long years with the same corporation. So, yeah. Yeah. So he's right. he's on the nose with it. I don't want to stand here and sound accusing. Everybody does their share of losing. You know what this reminds me of? This is one that really sounds like Elton John to me. Yeah. You know the song Mellow on Honky Chateau? Yeah. Yeah, the stops in Mellow and the stops in this are very similar. And what's interesting is the album that followed Turnstiles was originally recorded with Elton's band. But yeah, Weekend Song, I like it. It's fun. I like the arrangement. I like the music. You know, lyrically, just in general, the album's hit and miss with me. Some lyrics are fantastic. Some are just a little cringy. Some are a little half-baked. And I think Weekend Song's pretty half-baked, in my opinion. And just overall, a combination of him being rushed through this album. This is before he had guys like Liberty who were going to tell him that something <laughs> sucked. <laughs> yeah. You know, that when we did the Shades of Grey documentary, the line where Phil Ramone, wow. you know, Liberty would throw a set of sticks across the room if it wasn't a full <laughs> lyric. You know, I, I, I feel like he didn't have that sounding board yet. As much as, like, Liberty's drumming rose the game, also him being the sounding board of not being afraid to tell him that something wasn't up to snuff. I mean, I think that did wonders for what ended up on the records as well, because I feel like Liberty might have pushed back on quite a few of these lyrics. You almost wonder if it's a chicken to the egg thing to a point, because, you know, what I what I take away from Weekend Song was that he wasn't like he wasn't confident enough to do his own thing. Like last of the big time spender sounds half baked. Yep. This one sounds like he half heartedly tried to make a song that would be a blue collar rock hit. Yeah. He would never do that again. He would never like toss off a lyric. And this is the one that he still did. Going back to like Joni Mitchell, funny thing about Joni Mitchell is that she wrote songs that were all very personal, very individualistic to her, but then sometimes were about like David Geffen. But it, like it still worked. But right. she's one that like you can like almost never cover a Joni Mitchell song because they're so her. Yeah. And that's what Billy does to a point, but Billy's a little more universal, but you can tell when he's writing genuinely. And this is probably the last album when he's not. Maybe until the bridge a couple times where he's yeah, yes, and, yeah, like, and we'll is, get into it. And again, there were so many circumstances around that record, which we'll talk about down right. the road, which led to it coming coming out like that too. Yeah. A lot of you know external forces can play a role into how these records turn out. So after Weekend Song, uh, we have the fourth song on another side, which is Souvenir. And in one word for me, perfect. So short, so sweet. I, j- I just love this song. This is Billy at his most pure. I've never thought of it as most pure, but it, I think you're onto something there for sure. And vulnerable. Yeah, just, it feels vulnerable. Yeah, it's very vulnerable. He gets in, he gets out. He's not BSing on this one. It's funny coming after Weekend Song, which is, you know, real schlocky. We poured over some of the lyrics on this album, like, really closely. With all that in mind, he says so much with just just these two stanzas. It's a total of nine lines, this entire song. Nine lines, that's it. It's funny because it's not like Street Life Serenade or where we, where we were, like, you know, unlocking all these things and there's all these layers to it. It's just one perfect, almost terse snapshot. 
Yeah, just right there. Not a lot to it, but just does what it does perfect. I'm even just going to read it real quick because it's that short. Uh, a picture postcard, a folded stub, a program of the play. File away your photographs of your holiday and your mementos will turn to dust. But that's the price you pay for every year is a souvenir that slowly fades away. Every year is a souvenir that slowly fades away. Probably one yeah. of my favorite parts of it is and your mementos will turn to dust. But that's the price you pay. It's funny because it's so short and it spans so much time. <laughs> it spans enough time for everything to turn to dust. Two minutes and one second. Got that great rising melodic thing at the beginning. Precursor to Where's the Orchestra? I, I feel like it really pairs well with it. And, and as a matter of fact, on the Nylon Curtain Tour, quite often the two of them were played back to back. Were they really? Yeah. So like the Live from Long Island, which we talked about early on, it got cut from that release, but the band exited and then he would go do Where's the Orchestra, then Souvenir. And that was it. And huh. Souvenir used to be, was the ending song for a number of years. One of the Shea shows, I believe it was originally put in as the uh, closer for one of the songs. Maybe it was the one that Paul McCartney ended up showing up to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think or, we talked about that a little. Yeah. It's such a brave song to close in a, a big arena show with. You know, you have this, the band walks off stage, a Billy's big rock block of tunes. And then just to close the show of just where it all started, him and a piano. I mean, and he's able to make that big arena feel so small with this song. Yeah, it was the first show, July 16th. You know, maybe it's because it doesn't have like the full of any full band arrangement. Um, mm -hmm. So there's not the, the guitars and drums that date it to this album. This recording in particular feels a little more timeless just because it sounds like Billy sitting at a piano, albeit when he's in his 20s. I almost feel like you could easily slide this over to The Stranger or at the end of the Nylon Curtain and it could work. Got that little gospel tinge that you heard on like everybody has a dream. Well, honestly, after watching my VHS of Live from Long Island, Interesting choice. This doesn't close out the album. I feel it could have closed out the album nicely. But for the fifth song on side two, they go with the final instrumental, which is the Mexican Connection. To drive home my point again about this being cinematic in a movie, I guess the reason Souvenir doesn't close it out is the Mexican Connection is clearly what they're playing under the credits. Like, right. <laughs> got some We're nice little tasty moog on this. I can't say this definitively, but I will say that at least when compared to Root Beer Rag, it uses the same form is ragtime states the theme it does a little something comes back to the theme does something different comes back to the theme if that's not ragtime it's at least what he does on root beer rag he goes right. back to that opening theme back i can almost pair this song with ballad of billy the kid it's got that southwestern theme yeah hey, i think billy the kid goes other places but yeah you sure. can see those two going together mexican connection used to open a lot of shows like i think they used to come out to like the tape of this it's such a quirky thing in his catalog and yet you just like eh, there it is he's got like a little bossa nova kind of bass line that sounds like it got used again on an innocent man between this and last of the big time spenders those are the two points where you could just see why this album gets shuffled away so quickly you know the really interesting thing to me about the the street life serenade tour that followed is that's where doug stegmeyer joined the band by that point billy made his mind up that he was going to new york and doug brought along the guys with him yeah i mean that that also may just be part of why this one gets swept under the rug, you know, because in retrospect, we knew it was coming like right afterwards. Now, again, this is just according to Setlist FM. I don't think he played a lot in 75. So 74, he's got 66 shows. 76, he's got 51. 77, he's got 77. 1975 only has 19 shows. If you dip into 74, how many of them were before the album came out and after? Because the, oh, album, yeah, let me just... the album came out, what, October 26th, 1974. Mm -hmm. Let's see. So he goes from June 9th 
Then he's off the road, picks it back up on October 6th. A lot of times tours for an album will start a little before the album actually comes out. Plays through November, plays a handful of shows in, de- in December, plays like the 3rd, the 7th, and the 13th, and that's it. 75, yeah, and then he picks back up in February. Four in February, one, two, three, four, five. A handful in March and April and nothing again until like one. In May, he did the Old Grey Whistle test. And then oh. in October, he did Midnight Special. So yeah, that, this, this, there wasn't a lot of touring behind this one either, it looks like. Think like, okay, well, if it's like 1975, maybe it's more pre-Turnstiles than post-Street Life Serenade. But there's right. really nothing out there. Turnstiles came out May of 76, and Wikipedia has it being recorded in January. By 75, he must have had the, the new band assembled, and they were working on the material but actually 75 would have been when the album was recorded the first time too oh that's right yeah he would have been off the roof for that so i want to mention too that coming off the heels of piano man this actually this album actually charted pretty well yeah got what number 34 yeah i'm showing it got to 34 or 35 on the billboard 200 which yeah. for back then that's really good it didn't yeah, sell I mean, well though. it just didn't make an impression was the thing um the riaa is a nice uh resource of when things got certified so the you know the album came out like we said, October 26th, 1974. So it was actually certified gold, December 22nd, 1980. So the first half a million came in six years and then it was certified platinum, July 9th, 1997. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, you know, that's the next generation or two picking up the back catalog you figure you had your first wave in the 70s late 70s kids that were like just buying records in the 80s and then kids that jumped on stormfront and river of dreams right that's kind of three waves of people coming in and buying it up i'm curious how because the entertainer was the only single from the album obviously you know like like you i got into them way before the internet and you know you went to the store and if you were into billy joel you picked up whatever album you found Right. You weren't not going to try to buy it because you had no other way to know what it sounded like. You know, that's Street Life Serenade. And I, I feel like we unpacked all we could find in it. I wish this was documented better. I would love to hear some more of the stories about all the time surrounding it and, and everything. And it's a largely forgotten album. The songs that are not throwaways, it's worth sitting down at the lyric sheet and uncovering some gems. There's a lot of transitional moments in Billy's career, you know, as we're uncovering. We're talking about a specific time or era. It's a transition between whatever came before and what came next. Street Life Serenade is certainly that. Him coming to grips with his station in the music business, you know, he had mm-hmm. his first taste of success and now he's dealing with the baggage that comes along with that. And so, you know, he's trying to transition into, you know, the next phase of his career. And it's somebody that is clearly ready to go back to New York. So there's a lot of that kind of packed into the record, too. So, you know, this is the transitional period between that and Turnstiles, which is such a New York album through and through. I'm I'm super glad he stuck with it, clearly, because we wouldn't have this body of, of work that came after. And we certainly wouldn't have this podcast if he yeah, finished, right? if his last record was Street Life Serenade. He, he was touch and go at this point. I felt like his career really could have gone either way. And then he pulled two ballsy moves on the next two albums. One was not recording with Elton John's band for Turnstiles, and the second was uh, going with Phil Ramone over Sir George Martin. Talked a little too here about where it seems like he wasn't following his instincts on this album. He followed his instincts on every album after this. That's part of what does make this album so important is the lesson he learned. He's like, okay, I didn't follow my instincts and do what I knew was right, and I'm not happy with the result. He didn't want that to happen again. So what do you guys think? Who's listened to Street Live Serenade lately? Is this a is this a regular 
albums anybody's rotation out there uh, listening back did any song jump out at you that you've forgotten about uh, if so you know let us know we always love to hear from you guys we're on all the socials Facebook Twitter Instagram so you can find us there and reach out you can also email us directly at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com if you go to our website glasshousespod.com we link to all those places as well so that's a one stop shop you can uh, find us too and we'll see you next time alright guys we'll see you soon take care <laughs>